0: Listening to Descent Magazine's Belabored Podcast, hosted by Sarah Jaffe and Michelle
1: Chen. Hey, Sarah. Hi, Michelle. And welcome to Belabored, episode 232. In this episode, we are speaking with Eve Livingston, author of Make Bosses Pay, about her book and about the state of labor reporting in the United Kingdom. But first, the news. During the past year and a half, you've probably been fueling the massive boom in streaming services by binge-watching your favorite shows and movies. And now that we're emerging from the pandemic lockdowns, the traditional film industry may also get a boost as people start to attend live screenings in movie theaters again. But the entertainment industry isn't doing quite so well behind the scenes. The craft and technical workers who make these productions happen, the catering crew, the makeup artists, the sound techs, they're fed up with exhausting, often inhumane work regimens, as well as low pay. So the International Alliance of Theatrical Stage Employees or IATSE is taking the spotlight this week with a blockbuster strike authorization vote in which nearly 90% of eligible members cast ballots and about 98% of those voted in favor of a strike. The overwhelming response from the members shows just how frustrated members feel with the ongoing contract talks with the Alliance of Motion Picture and Television Producers. IATSE is trying to negotiate for contract provisions that protect crew members from the brutal working conditions that have become routine in an industry culture of high stress and overwork. Members have complained about issues like not having regular meal or rest breaks and work schedules that require extreme sleep deprivation, as well as entry-level wages that are simply too little to live on, especially given the number of hours that they're working on a set each week. The voting locals, 13 on the West Coast and 23 others nationwide, represent about 60,000 workers who do everything from edit film to providing the catering for film sets. They often work 12-hour shifts and earn less than $18 an hour. Weekends are non-existent for many, and members complain that these working conditions are not just abusive but unsafe. They also want more secure pensions and benefits. And the contract dispute also reflects an ongoing debate about the future of the industry. A major concern for IFC members is how streaming productions are monetized. For the so-called new media category, which is not really new, of course, but the industry likes to treat it as such, workers tend to earn less than they would for conventional productions, even though some of these new media productions might have budgets that are comparable to, or even bigger than, more conventional films and shows. The fight is similar to how the Screenwriters Guild went on strike back in 2007-2008 to demand a greater share of the profits from new media platforms that were just emerging then, such as on-demand and streaming. Arguably, the desire for a fair share of digital media profits is also the impetus behind the recent wave of union organizing in digital newsrooms. The union says, quote, we are fighting to ensure that the most powerful media corporations on the planet treat the film and TV workers who produce their content with basic human dignity, unquote. And that call has been backed by hundreds of members of Congress and many celebrities. It's not clear how close they are to striking, The Alliance, for its part, has insisted that it made Iatsi an offer that met some of these demands, and the talks have just resumed. But if the impasse drags on, many TV and film sets might go dark, walk off
0: set, and go up front on the picket line. We've talked about the Nabisco and Frito-Lay strikes this summer, and now workers at another iconic American food manufacturer on the picket lines, Kellogg. Workers there, too, are part of the Bakery, Confectionery, Tobacco Workers, and Grain Millers International Union, and they complain of similar conditions to the workers at Nabisco and Frito-Lay. Long days and weeks, sometimes forced overtime up to 16 hours, and the company cutting jobs and moving production across the border. Travis Huffman, a worker at the company's Battle Creek, Michigan plant, facilities in Omaha, Nebraska, Lancaster, Pennsylvania, and Memphis, Tennessee are also on strike, told reporters, quote, I agreed to work here for certain things that they promised they would do with benefits and wages. You work weekends and occasionally get forced over 16 hours a day, and now they want to take those things away from me. Missed enough time with my family and friends because of those things, and I'm not going to work here for less. The strike began this Tuesday and includes around 1,400 workers across the four facilities. Kellogg, like the other companies that saw strikes this year, had record sales during the pandemic, and yet the company is asking for givebacks in a contract that already sees workers putting in those grueling hours. As the pandemic hit, workers had to pick up the slack when their co-workers fell ill, and they are angry that the company wants to cut back their healthcare benefits, holiday and vacation pay, and reduce their retirement benefits. The challenge for workers in manufacturing, food manufacturing as much as anything else, is that when companies already want to move jobs out of the country, shutting down the plant through a strike doesn't have the same leverage that workers in less easily outsourced fields like healthcare and teaching do. Yet, as one of the workers told NPR, food manufacturing workers might have a little bit of added leverage. Daniel Osborne, president of the local in Omaha, noted, quote, a lot of Americans probably don't have too much issue with Nike or Under Armour hats being made elsewhere or even our vehicles. But when they start manufacturing our food down where they are out of the FDA control and OSHA control, I have a huge problem with that. The last time Kellogg workers struck was reportedly in 1972, so perhaps the bosses have simply gotten used to a complacent workforce. With the threats of outsourcing all around, it has certainly been hard for workers in the last few good manufacturing jobs to challenge their conditions. But with the pandemic, those conditions have rapidly worsened. And with the long hours and the blatant obviousness that their bosses don't care if they die seem to have changed the calculus for a lot of workers. And we now have what looks like a strike wave in food manufacturing as well as in healthcare. We will bring you more on this subject in the coming weeks. Stay tuned.
1: The labels on the clothes you're wearing right now probably say made in China or made in Bangladesh, Pakistan, or any other country in Asia or Latin America that has become a major hub of the global garment industry. But made in L.A. is actually still a thing. The city is home to a small but robust apparel manufacturing sector, a workforce of largely undocumented immigrants who are earning very little money. These factories, which make up the second largest industry in the city, have been historically known to be highly exploitative and in some cases have been deemed to be full-fledged sweatshops. They supply clothing to major U.S. brands like Forever 21. But for the first time in 20 years, a major set of reforms for the garment industry has just been signed into law by California Governor Gavin Newsom. The law will end the infamous piece rate system, in which workers are paid just pennies for every component of a shirt or dress that they cut and sew. That will prevent employers from using the piece rate to pressure workers to produce more at an ever more frenzied pace. According to the Garment Workers Center, quote, a majority of LA's 45,000 garment workers only make one third of the minimum wage, unquote. The second focus of the law is about holding employers accountable. Workers who have been victims of wage theft can recover their lost wages through the brands and retailers that they produce for, as opposed to chasing after the individual factory owners that have been subcontracted for this work. Those owners might simply shut down rather than face legal liability when workers start targeting them with wage theft claims. In 2016, the Department of Labor reported that in a series of probes spanning five years, quote, the department's wage and hour division officials in Southern California have concluded over 1,000 investigations in the garment industry, resulting in more than $11.7 million in back wages, unquote. But that volume of wage theft might just be a fraction of what was actually stolen from workers. The legislation mirrors a wage theft law for the construction industry that was passed back in 2017, which ensures that workers can pursue their claims against a general contractor when they've been bilked out of wages by a subcontractor. Similarly, the garment workers want a way to hold the big names in the industry accountable for the labor conditions in the workplaces that they've outsourced their work to. There's been a lot of discussion in the fashion industry about how to end our addiction to so-called fast fashion and move toward a more environmentally and socially sustainable production system. Structural change on the global level is going to be extremely difficult to achieve, at least in the immediate future. But L.A.'s garment industry, a bastion of low-wage manufacturing in the midst of one of America's richest cities, might be a laboratory for more ethical ways of making fashion. I spoke with Marissa Nuncio, director of the Garment Workers Center based in L.A., the group that helped spearhead the legislation.
2: SB 62, the Garment Worker Protection Act, was signed into law on September 27th. I believe it was Monday, September 27th, uh, by the governor. Um, Just as a very quick summary, SB 62 is a brand accountability policy. It, It creates upstream liability in the garment supply chain so that garment workers who experience wage theft can bring a wage claim against their factory owner, and other um, manufacturers, and the fashion brands that they were producing. Um, they can include them in their wage claim and recover unpaid wages from them. So we, you know, we're, we're really excited because that was a very, very heavily opposed provision of our bill uh, by industry associations. Um, and you know, we stood strong that that's what the heart of our bill was, and that's what needed to be in our bill and, and what was needed to make change in the local industry. Um, and so we're just so excited that, that we were able to achieve it. The other part of the bill um, that's really important is an elimination of the peace rate pay system. Um, so rather than being paid um, like pennies per operation, workers have to be paid on an hourly minimum wage, at least the minimum wage. So that's pretty, that's pretty um, sweeping change, you know, to finally be able to hold fashion brands accountable for wage theft and to finally eliminate this really archaic exploitative system of payment. Um, and there's other provisions in there that are sort of that improve and expand um, enforcement. Um, In California for, you know, implementing the law. Um, Yeah, so that happened. (laughs) We won. Um, It was a two-year campaign. And, um, you know, it was a pretty, it was really hard to lose last year. We didn't get called to a vote, but our members were adamant that we we refile immediately, we resubmit the bill immediately, and we did, we submitted on the first day of the new legislative season. And, you know, we just built more support. We just tried to, you know, reframe that really hard loss, and use it as time to build more support, Um, and we did. We ended up with 158 business endorsers, um, fashion business endorsers that really were very engaged, just, you know, doing so much work on this campaign and really meaningfully countering the industry sort of misinformation that businesses did not want this bill. It wasn't true. Um, yeah, and we just, I think we garnered something like over 22,000 petition signatures that we delivered to the governor. So we just use that time to build, build, build. Um, Yeah, and so now we're sort of just sitting and thinking and reflecting, um, beginning our evaluations of the campaign, and really thinking about the next steps, which really to do a pretty um, broad education campaign locally for garment workers and businesses. And
1: is there something in the legislation that um, tries to flesh out the enforcement process, or have you given any thought to how you will actually make sure that employers are following the law?
2: Well, one component of the bill expands the authority of the state's Bureau of Field Enforcement uh, to be able to issue citations up the chain of production as well to the fashion brands. So that's brand new authority. And the reasoning and thinking there was that not only should workers be able to name, you know all actors and their wage claims, including fashion brands, but you know not all workers come forward to file a wage claim. That's you know, can be a really kind of intimidating process. Um, and we thought it was important that there was, just more teeth and tools, I guess, you know, available to the Bureau of Field Enforcement to be able to do that same type of work. So we do think that combination of both like the expanded ability for workers to bring wage claims forward on these new provisions and the, you know, expanded authority of the inspector arm of the state to, to you know, bring their inspections around these new, um, these new rights and obligations is really important.
1: Yeah. Um, Do you think this might set a template for um, the global supply chain in the garment industry? Um, And um, obviously, the situation uh, with workers in L.A. is different from workers in, say, Bangladesh or other big garment exporters. But um, do you think that this might uh, set an example?
2: I hope so. I think that we as an organization are realizing the impact that it could have on a global scale. Um, I think that GWC has always sort of viewed itself as a very local organization. You know, we represent the Los Angeles garment industry, um, but in the alliances that we built in this campaign and in the, um, the kind of build up to this victory and, and just within the last week of this victory, we're really hearing from um peers in the anti sweatshop movement around the world about how they've been following this campaign and how they're really interested to learn um, more specifics about the the you know liability provisions that they're really interested to learn what you know we assess were the strategic winning you know points of the campaign and we're really excited to be in that space because frankly we've looked you know to our peers um, and learn from them. You know, we've we've learned so much from the organizing around the Bangladesh Accord for for you know that is a brand liability accord, right? Um, and how that impacts supply chains. So you know, I think it's really exciting that there's this synergy happening around the world toward brand accountability and due diligence and supply chains, and to the extent that our um, campaign. And when is um, informative or useful to kind of you know that broader movement for corporate accountability? I'm really excited to be part of that.
0: That was Marissa Nuncio of the Garment Workers Center. Around the country, nurses and healthcare workers continue to hit the picket lines. In Massachusetts, the nurses at St. Vincent are still out, and tenant workers from around the country have sent a letter to the company's CEO expressing concern with its treatment of the St. Vincent nurses. In Oregon, healthcare workers with SEIU Local 49 are on a two-day unfair labor practices strike at McKenzie Willamette Medical Center. Nurses at Kaiser Permanente in California and Oregon, nearly 30,000 of them, are taking strike votes this week. And in Buffalo, some 2,000 healthcare workers at Mercy Hospital are out on the picket lines, fighting against a two-tier healthcare system for safe staffing and raises. The workers are members of the Communications Workers of America, and according to friend of the show C.M. Lewis at The Nation, they have been bargaining for months for a master agreement that would cover three different Buffalo hospitals in the Catholic health system. But the workers are also tired of horrendous conditions worsened by the pandemic in a story that may sound familiar to all of you. Debbie Hayes, the upstate area director for CWA and a member of the bargaining committee, told Lewis, quote, people are telling us stories about using ripped towels to make washcloths, using hospital socks for washcloths, not being able to get medical grade gloves, not being able to get urinals and using suction canisters for patients to urinate. Democratic socialist and Democratic nominee for mayor of Buffalo, India Walton, herself a former union nurse with SEIU 1199, has supported the workers, and the nurses say that patients have expressed support as well. Lewis writes, quote, patients are putting signs of support in their windows, and some have even come out to picket with healthcare workers, workers, one coming to tell them how poorly non-union replacement nurses treat patients. He said, it's very negative care he's getting from the agency nurses, and he had to get out of there, said one nurse. They asked him to come back inside, and he told them no, because the real nurses are outside, end quote. Understaffing and low wages, particularly among the environmental service workers who are responsible for hospital cleaning and sanitation, are particular areas of complaint, as the workers in those positions don't even make $14 an hour. And the healthcare workers at Mercy connect their struggles with nurses and care workers around the country who have had enough. We have to fix it, Debbie Hayes told Lewis. We have to look at how we deliver care in this country. We have to look at the lack of attention that is being given to the people that deliver the care, and we really need to readjust our priorities. Union activity is up all of a sudden, or maybe not so suddenly at all. Yet union density is still at historic lows in the U.S. and around the world, and too many young people have no practical experience organizing on the job. Our guest today has written a book aimed at those very young workers, a book that serves both as a primer to the labor movement and a critique of the way it has operated for too long now. Eve Livingston is a labor journalist based in Glasgow, one of the very few dedicated labor reporters in Britain, and she is the author of the new book Make Bosses Pay, which I enthusiastically blurbed and which you can buy now from Pluto Press. So, Eve, welcome to Belabored. Um, Start out by telling us a little bit about your book and why you chose to write this book um, now in this mess that we're in. (laughs)
3: <laughs> um, yeah, thank you for having me. So the book is um, Make Bosses Pay. Um, and it's a book that is about why unions matter for young workers. So why young workers need to be union members. Um, but it's just as much about how unions need to change and evolve to to meet those young workers' needs and to be kind of fit for the, the 21st century. Um, so it is, it's UK based. You know, that's my knowledge of, of the kind of UK labour market and the UK union movement. But I hope that the sort of bigger picture um, is still kind of relevant and and widely applicable. Um, And in terms of kind of why I decided to write it, I suppose um, it feels to me in the UK, at least, like unions are in this kind of state of sort of existential crisis, if you like, where, um, you know, the coronavirus has changed this picture slightly, but the kind of membership statistics and, and data, um, is just kind of a downward spiral, um, and and young people aren't being attracted to join in the same numbers, so there's a kind of um, declining membership um but that unions are needed more than ever you know we live in a kind of um society that's getting more and more unequal um more and more unfair and unions are the the answer to that so there is the, there's this kind of um double thing going on of of people not turning to the one solution that we have for the the kind of accelerating problems that we face so i wanted to um to speak to that young audience and to say to them you know unions are for you they are the answer to the kind of questions that you're asking in terms of inequality and building a fairer society um, but you're going to have to do a bit of work, <laughs> you know, you're going to have to get in there and uh, and kind of change them from the inside.
0: Yeah. Yeah. One of the things that that's always a little bit different when talking um, for, about unions in the UK versus unions in the US is that um, you can just sort of join a union in the UK, whereas in the States, you really have to go through the process of sort of organizing your workplace and winning recognition for it to matter. Um, and so I always find this kind of interesting because there's a, there's a way that you can just sort of say, like, okay, we'll join a union. But even so, just just joining, as you note many times in this book, isn't enough that you really do have to still put in the work.
3: Mm. Yeah, I think um, that is something that I thought about a lot. You know, I wrote this book kind of over the course of um, pandemic lockdowns. Right. And at least in the UK, I'm not sure of the picture in the US, but as soon as kind of, um, as soon as the extent of, of the coronavirus pand- pandemic started to become clear, I saw a lot of people on my kind of social media, you know, so so left-wing engaged people kind of saying, Like the number one thing you have to do is join a union, you know, join a union today, make sure you're in a union so that you're protected, because all this stuff is in the post about how coronavirus is going to affect us. But it made me slightly uneasy because I was like, you know, are we asking people to join unions just for the sake of joining unions? Because as you point out, that means more in some workplaces than it does in others Um, and also you know as I don't shy away from in the book some bits of the union movement are really really need to kind of move with the times to be effective for that young workforce so so that was kind of a guiding question for me actually was when we when we tell young people to join a union what what do we mean by that what are we actually asking of them there Um, and I think for me you know we, we are asking them to to join and to actually be an active part of that union and not just to expect to kind of service um in response to their to their fees Um, but you know similarly there's a huge kind of challenge there for the union movement itself who you know those those unions and the movement also has to step up so it's kind of on on both sides i think yeah.
0: So we will get much more into the state of unions in Britain. <laughs> but I wanted to ask you a little bit at the start about sort of the state of labor journalism in Britain, because you are one of very, very few dedicated labor reporters in the country countries. And, you know, we've seen very recently, I spent a lot of the summer sort of screaming internally about the coverage of the Unite election. Mm. Um so, yeah, I mean, I'd love your thoughts on sort of what's going on with labor journalism in Britain. Why is there so little of it? Um, and how has it been trying to revive it?
3: <laughs> um and so I think that's like a big and a small question because the, mm-hmm. the short answer is there just isn't very much of it um there's yeah. not a lot going on but the the long answer is you know I think there's kind of multiple kind of different factors to this so I think you're you're right to say that there just isn't a kind of culture at all of of industrial reporters anymore you know there used to be in newspapers would kind of each have a a dedicated industrial reporter and those jobs just don't exist anymore um this is not a kind of fact-checked stat but I believe there's only one left in the in the UK um but people might want to double check that. Um, so, you know, I have only ever done this work as a freelancer, um, because it just doesn't exist as a kind of staff role. Um, and I've never been able to be a kind of full time, um, industrial relations freelancer. I've always had to be kind of broader than that doing sort of social affairs and stuff as well, because it's also really hard to get commissioned to write about unions. Um, and I suppose, you know, I, probably we could fill a whole podcast talking about the the reasons why that might be. Um, I think a, a huge part of it is the kind of structure of media and journalism in the UK and, you know, kind of ownership and power and how that's completely... Um, you know, millionaire owners of, you know, conglomerates, so it looks like there are all these different outlets, but actually there are only kind of three or four businesses running them all. I think that's a, a huge part of it. Um, and also just the kind of weakening of of unions in the last, you know, 30 or 40 years, um, makes it kind of easy for people to say that they're irrelevant. Um, because when you look at how, how attacked they've been and how their powers have been curtailed, um it's much harder for them to do stuff that makes headlines um you know that's a that's the catch twenty two because if you had industrial reporters talking about what was happening on the ground, those are really interesting stories that aren't being told um but I think editors are looking for the kind of big banner strike story all the time um and there are just they're just fewer and far further between because of how kind of um relatively powerless now unions are so um, yeah, I mean, you're right to pick up on the Unite election. I think that's a very good um, example where, um, you know, the, the kind of headlines that we were getting about the Unite leadership election were um, sort of suggesting that this candidate, Sharon Graham, just had no chance whatsoever of winning or that she was splitting the, the left wing vote. Um and all of this kind of stuff. And actually, that was completely disconnected from what was happening on the ground. And she did go on to win the election. And it wasn't really a surprise to grassroots members of, of Unite. So I think that that is a really good example that kind of highlights, you know, the, the huge disconnect really between what's happening in the grassroots of unions and what's happening um Actually, in the top of unions, the people that are speaking to the media, you know, are the sometimes the the kind of very top elected representatives, and and if they're disconnected from their membership, then what they're telling the media is also going to be disconnected from the wider membership. Mm. So there's a lot going on there. Um, There's a lot very much so uh, needs to be changed. I think
0: this reminds me of uh, I was on the radio with a sort of Washington D.C. based quote unquote labor journalist for um, a place that will remain nameless. And she was like, oh, yeah, well, I, you know, I talked to the leader of this union and the leader of that, union. what the unions are saying and what the workers are saying is something different. I was like, well, the workers are the union.
3: Yes. Yeah.
0: Like, (laughs) you know, like if you are only talking to the leader of the union and you're noticing that they're not saying the same thing as the members, then that doesn't mean that the union is the person Mm -hmm. in the office. The union is the people on the ground. Yeah. but anyway, yeah, and of course, like, we've noted this in the U.S. that that labor journalism goes along with the fortunes of organized labor, that the first time I started getting calls to cover labor, because people were like, oh, Sarah Sarah knows about that stuff, <laughs> um, was the uprising in Wisconsin in 2011, and then the fight for 15, and then, you know, with the growth of things like that, then suddenly, you know, my phone starts ringing. Um, and so, yeah, I guess to then go back to the state of the unions, um... I mean, for all the decline and all of the misery, like the UK still has twice the union density of the US, uh, which is something that depresses me on both ends. Yeah. But yeah, but on a sort of more um, granular level, I guess, like, what are some of the challenges and I guess some maybe hopeful strands of what's going on with unions in the UK?
3: Yeah, so I think... um there are kind of sort of big macro challenges I suppose that that sort of then lead you to some of the more granular ones and I think they're to do with um you know the changing labor market or the changed labor market so the idea that our unions were built for you know essentially kind of manual laborers when we were a, a society that was producing stuff an economy that was producing things in factories um which we're just not anymore you know we're a service and care economy now largely um but the unions haven't necessarily been able to kind of change as fast as the the labor market has changed um so for me the the really kind of hopeful optimistic stuff that's happening is um is around that theme it's where unions um new and established have kind of recognized that challenge and have thought about how to do things differently to to kind of adapt to that um that new economy so um what i'm talking about there is you know, the kind of spate of new grassroots unions who've only been established within the last decade, um, who've set themselves up precisely to kind of meet the needs of precarious workers and migrant workers and people in, in sectors like hospitality and uh, care and retail who historically have had no um, union presence, really, and who are also adapting their tactics to meet that, that kind of need. So there's a campaign, you know, I'm based in Scotland, and there's a campaign called Better Than Zero in Scotland, um, which comes from the traditional union movement. It's part of the Scottish Trade Union's Congress, um, but it's specifically set up to kind of help with people facing zero hours contracts and precarious contracts in hospitality primarily. And they, they're very kind of um, responsive and uh you know they, they use direct action for instance which many of the traditional unions kind of steer well clear of um, and they'll you know the typical kind of journey for someone with better than zero is that they'll send a Facebook message and they'll say you know as an example my boss is um, keeping all the tips and we're not we're not getting them and then better than zero are able to kind of act really quickly to collectivize that issue to find other people that are facing it and to kind of do direct action whether it's calling out the employer on social media or turning up and doing some kind of creative protest you know out the front of the restaurant um and that to people who are involved in kind of wider activism and organizing those tactics are quite bread and butter but for the kind of traditional union movement i actually think they they don't come so naturally sometimes because it can be set in its ways, um, and so so that provides a really kind of good example I think of how even within that kind of traditional um, movement that's slower to, to change, there are still really good examples of of where um, organisers have managed to kind of get into those new sectors and embrace kind of creative, interesting tactics and B flexible and responsive which is what young workers need you know they can't afford to wait kind of three months for their membership to sort of kick in at the point in which they're kind of then eligible to get legal advice or whatever they need that that advice you know the moment that the, the kind of grievance emerges um so yeah there's a lot for there's a lot for unions to do but there are certainly examples out there of of um that provide a sort of blueprint for how they could be doing it
2: mm.
0: Yeah. I was going to ask a little bit more about these, um, right. This sort of new grassroots unions, um, which are, and you know, we should note that part of the reason that the unite leadership election coverage was so terrible is it's just covered as sort of an adjunct to the labor party. Mm. Um, and so a lot of these new unions are not affiliated to the labor party. They're not thinking about their power as something that comes through the ballot box, but something that happens, as you say, through direct action, through strikes. Um, And that's been really interesting to watch. Um, And they're also moving into a bunch of these sort of new or at least newly um, dominant sectors. Mm. But there have also obviously been sort of growing pains that a lot of these unions have proliferated because there have been splits within them. Um, And so, yeah, I wonder if you could talk a little bit more about sort of this sector and what some of the strengths and weaknesses of those compared to the bigger, more traditional unions
3: Yeah, I I think I would, um, I always kind of try and, talk about this by saying first of all that the traditional unions in some sense are fighting a much harder battle in some ways because you know they they are very kind of institutionalized they've got huge in some cases huge membership numbers that they need to kind of look after they've got you know sort of um <laughs> screens and screens of policies that they need to be adhering to they've got like loads of staff big buildings all of this stuff means that they have to be kind of slower to change and they've got you know a lot of things kind of holding them back whereas these new young sort of grassroots unions and um, although they you know are very limited in resource um, in terms of budget and stuff they, they also are able to be kind of agile and really good at PR and that kind of thing so I wouldn't want to kind of create the impression that you know they're they're doing all this great stuff and the traditional union movement are stuck in the past and they should just copy you know what the new unions are doing I don't think it's as, as simple as that um, but yeah, I think that kind of the the issue you identify with the Labour Party is really key here, where not all traditional unions are affiliated to the Labour Party, but many of them are. And I think that creates kind of, I guess, challenges in terms of what your organising strategy looks like, how much kind of energy you dedicate politically and, and, you know, who you're trying to keep happy and all of that kind of stuff. And that the, these new grassroots unions um, are independent of that. You know, they, they don't have to kind of worry about those things at the, the top level. Um, and they're also just able, as I kind of highlighted there, they're able to act quickly and creatively. you know they don't have to go through three levels of kind of committee meetings and board meetings to get stuff passed. They're able to just kind of um send a message on WhatsApp and have something you know done the next day. so one of the examples in the book is of someone who went to the Um, IWGB, the Independent Workers of Great Britain, um, a courier worker, um, because they were facing a problem with pay. Um, and the IWGB didn't have a, a local branch in the area where this worker lived and um, so they were you know a bit kind of stuck on how to help this person but what they did was they just called a, a really quick meeting and agreed to establish a branch <laughs> in that area and everyone agreed to that and suddenly they had a branch in the area and they could have an organiser that would um, you know help with that grievance and that grievance was kind of tackled directly you know they put stuff on twitter naming the employer um, and the pay issue was sorted within you know a few days um and that that's the kind of stuff that's just not necessarily possible in the kind of big um institutionalized unions um that just can't move as quickly as that um so yeah I wouldn't want to create the the impression that kind of the new unions are the the holy grail and they've got all the answers and the old ones are not not worth you know keeping up with um because there are strengths and weaknesses to both but um I think it's it's helpful that, that those new unions are there um yeah in the, in the sectors where they need to be and kind of embracing some of those um different tactics
0: yeah So I'm not going to make you go through the entire history of British trade unions, which you do fairly well and fairly quickly in the book. Um, But I did want to ask you to talk a little bit about the the more recent laws restricting union activity under Thatcher and then the 2016 um, law passed by the coalition government and sort of how those have acted to restrict what the unions can and can't do.
3: Yeah, I mean... Thatcher I think, you know, everyone kind of thinks of as being the the Prime Minister who, you know, truly kind of smashed the unions and took all their strength. Um and, and I there is truth to that. I understand why that is, because she did, you know, kind of pass this, you know, swathe of um, restrictions against unions, but I think what's really important for people to know is that no no government since Thatcher um, has acted to roll those back or or has actually introduced anything that strengthens unions. You know, all of the legislation that's been passed um, has weakened them further. Um, and as you point out, that twenty sixteen um, trade union act was kind of second only to to Thatcher really in terms of the devastation it, it kind of brought onto the unions. So, you know, we're in a position now where trade unions have to have, you know, just to highlight a couple of the restrictions on them because there are so many, um, have to have fifty percent um, you know, uh turnout in a ballot to um or not turn out fifty percent support in a ballot to we to go on um strike or take any kind of industrial action. They have to have named supervisors at picket lines. There are limits on the number of people that can attend a picket line and um, you know, so so all those things kind of present um, not just challenges to trade union power, but they also work to kind of present all these sort of really like difficult logistical and admin challenges that just suck organisers time and energy to try and keep on the right side of them. You know, it makes it so difficult in terms of introducing all this kind of bureaucracy to impede their action as well as just limiting them. Um you know, in terms of power um, and there there's no protection really for trade unions as collective entities. So there are protections for individual workers where, in theory, at least you can't be discriminated against for trade union membership. In practice, you, you probably still can in, in a lot of ways, um, but there, there isn't any corresponding um, protection for trade unions as kind of collective organisations. It's all, all individual. Um, and that's the direction that we're we're going in. Still, I think, you know, this kind of focus on individual rights and individual responsibilities um, without any focus on kind of how people act collectively. Um so there's probably you know more more to come really um, I hope there isn't, but certainly with the the government that we have and the way that the kind of conversation is going um you know unions have got a big fight on their hands to to stop any further um restrictions as well as to try and kind of roll back some of those that that exist.
0: One of the things that I appreciate about your book uh, and why I, I said in my blurb that I wanted to hand it to a lot of union officials as well <laughs> as young people who might not know what unions are is that you continually sort of make the case that the union is only as vibrant as we were saying at the top of uh, as its members participation and that the union shouldn't be just a body for solving grievances, but a social and political space for people. Um, and so we've been forgiving of the unions now, we're going to be a little bit mean to them. Um, How have they forgotten this in ways that maybe aren't restricted by the trade union laws, but are just sort of habits that unions have gotten into? Um, Because I think the way you depict it in the book, it seems very, very similar in the US to the UK. It seems like we've got the same problems.
3: Yeah. Yeah, I think, I mean, first and foremost, I would say that, you know, the the union laws are really restrictive, and we're right to kind of continually highlight that and to fight back against them. But there are also ways that you can still be brave and bold, you know, within the, the law, um, or even in some cases against it, you know, that's how things have been won in the past um and i think the the union movement in the uk to a large extent has become very kind of risk averse and scared to do anything even on the within even within the law that kind of pushes up against it um, so, so you know, we can't, we shouldn't fall into the kind of trap of thinking that there's just no, there's just nothing for unions to do in this in, in this uh, context because it's not true. Um, but certainly, where I think, in a kind of structural sense, um, some of these problems lie, is this sort of you know service model that unions have um, adopted increasingly. Kind of as a result of that difficult context that they're working in, um, the idea that they exist to service their existing members um, rather than to kind of organise new sectors and things, um, and so what what you end up with there is you end up with u- unions working in the interests of kind of very specific sectors that are already well represented. Um, And kind of having to forego, you know, getting into any new sort of sectors or speaking to any new young workers, um, because they are kind of beholden to their existing membership. Um, And what that then looks like, I think, to a kind of um, new prospective member of a union is... um, a sort of subscription you know it looks like how union membership works is that you pay your fees every month and your union provides you a service where they might kind of give you you know, ad hoc advice on a situation, they might also mm-hmm. give you a discount on a laptop or a particular <laughs> restaurant or whatever. Um, and all really? that stuff Can I get discount? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I would love a discount on, on a new laptop, <laughs> but what I'm looking for from a union is right. sort of collective action, right? It's like yeah. not not for them to come in and sort of solve my one individual case with my one boss, but for them to, um you know, Show me as a kind of young member that it's not just an issue about me, it's not just an issue about my one bad Apple boss, but it's an issue about work and it's an issue about capitalism and the structure of our society. And so, you know when you have that service model, you're not able to do that. You're just firefighting all the time. Um, And what we need is an organizing model where you can collectivize those issues and you can do that kind of political education and you can build new activists and new organizers who go on to be the kind of future leaders of the union movement.
0: Yeah, and that obviously relates to the sort of individual joining thing and the way it sort of gets treated as almost like you sign up and you're, you're paying your monthly donation, right? That like that sort of moral admonition to be a good person, good leftist, good whatever, by being a member of your union. Um, and that ends up equating to like the kind of monthly donations I give to like abortion funds or something, yes, right? Where it's yeah. like, yeah, $10 a month goes out of my account every every month. Um, and I have nothing to do with it other than the money disappears out of my account.
3: Yeah. And, and, and the people that you're kind of talking about there are people who are um, you know kind of a rife to be sort of um, talked to in that political context because they're kind of people who are who care about the issues and are engaged and they're sort of doing or, or becoming members of unions out of a, a moral duty and um, but there's also like a whole swathe of people who like aren't those people who we still need to be trying to bring in and convince and and talk to but you know arguably they're the people that need that kind of political education that unions can provide that that role that unions can fulfill that no one else is fulfilling of kind of as i just said you know talking to you about why things are the way they are you know why you might be feeling individually dissatisfied but it's part of a a bigger picture um and those people at the moment we're just not reaching them not talking to them really um and they're not being presented with anything that they think is valuable you know they're they're looking in some cases at their union and they're saying like well, maybe I would join if I would get anything out of it, but I don't see that they ever do anything um, and that's you know that's to do with the kind of difficult um situation that unions are in, but th- those are the people to me that we need to be reaching
0: yeah yeah, I think um obviously some of this is is connected to the fact that that a lot of unions have let go of the idea um, that they should talk about capitalism and that they should talk about more permanently perhaps changing the shape of the economy and the power relations therein.
3: Yeah, um, I think that's right. And I think it is why I, when I was writing the book, I kind of intended to talk like in bits and pieces about um, Union democracy, just kind of where it was relevant as it came up. And actually, in doing the research, I um, ended up realizing that I needed a whole chapter. And actually, I could have written a whole book about Union democracy. And I think that's particularly relevant here, because what you have, and it's similar to what we were talking about with the kind of media question, what you have in some situations is, you know, kind of A, a democratic structures that mimic sort of businesses and, and workplaces, um, but B, you have these hierarchical, hierarchical, I can't say that word, um, structures with kind of people, a few people at the top, not seeding very much power down. Um, and quite often they, you know, are necessarily, because of the way our unions are structured, they have to take on a sort of um negotiation mediation role with bosses and with employers so they're not really going into kind of disputes or meetings sort of accurately representing really the the feeling of kind of membership or grassroots grassroots members they are um doing a sort of um like semi hr role in some senses and um, so i think the root of a, a lot of this is about is about union democracy and kind of overhauling that so that we don't you know have this situation where actually like the interests of the union and the interests of the bosses are like relatively similar in, in a way that they're not in real life
0: yeah i think one of the things that i i think about a lot with That is obviously um, Joshua Clover's framework of the affirmation trap, that as sort of deindustrialization sets in, unions that are based in that industrial work have sort of no choice but to try to beg to keep their workplaces open and how that disempowers um, the strike. In fact, I talked about that a little bit at the top of this podcast in one of our news items where I was talking about the strikes at various food manufacturers in the US this summer. And, yeah, and it presents a real challenge in how adversarial you can be when you're also trying to preserve jobs the way they have been.
3: Absolutely. And and we see that, you know, um, in the US and the UK in terms of the sort of climate agenda. And, you know, we just in the last week in the UK, we've seen, you know, some of the big unions come out and speak against um you know green energy and sort of green transition and that kind of thing because it threatens the the um, livelihoods of their workers and it's such a kind of small c conservative way to think I think that there's no alternative to the way things are currently you know um when actually you know I don't need to tell you or your audience there are so many alternatives and there's so many things we could be kind of fighting for in terms of those workers ultimately actually having a way better kind of deal you know unions end up having to take kind of really weird um (laughs) really weird sort of Anti-left positions, in some senses, um, because of that kind of structure that they're operating in.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, you tell this one particular story in the book that really struck with me about the Grunwick strike and what it showed about sort of labor's misunderstanding of maybe who and where its base was. Now, um, can you tell our listeners a little bit of that story and what you took away from it?
3: Yes. Yeah, so the the Grunwick strike, um, I think, actually, is, is one of the kind of more um, talked about uh, strikes when it comes to sort of marginalised workers. So obviously, there's a lot of hidden history in terms of how marginalised workers have always been kind of um, right in the centre of union activity. Um or at least trying to be, right, in the centre of union activity. Um, and there's a lot of those stories that we never tell, but actually, Grumwick, we we do kind of tell that story. But it, it concerns women workers, mostly South Asian women workers, in a photo processing um, factory in London, who um, took strike action in the 70s without um, union recognition. They actually weren't part of a union. They just um, kind of had enough one day and walked out, led by this one particular South Asian woman. Um, and they, the reason that the Rumwick strike is so kind of um, instructive and, and actually moving to think about is because they um, kind of did, they did amass huge support from the union movement. And this was at a time when the movement was very divided and the country, you know, had a lot of kind of um sort of far right groups on the march and you know a lot of kind of very overt racism happening um both just in wider society and within the union movement actually um but these these women went on strike and they amassed huge support they stayed out for um for weeks and weeks and they got support from across the whole union movement you know the the national union of mine workers came and marched in support of them across london um, but they ultimately didn't win. The TUC kind of withdrew support of them when it looked like there was just, they were at a kind of stalemate, you know, there was no kind of um, solution to be reached. And there's a really good quote by um, the the woman who led that strike who says something like, I don't have it in front of me, but something like, um, you know, trade union support is like honey on the elbow, you can see it and you can smell it, but you can never taste it. Um, And that speaks, I think, really very beautifully um, to the kind of contingent um, support that marginalised workers have always had within the the union movement. So they've sometimes been, well, actually, they've often been the kind of most brave, um, most progressive People in the in the movement doing the kind of boldest, best organizing, um, but the the support that the the kind of movement as a structure has given them has always been um, contingent um, and conditional.
0: Yeah, yeah. You have this passage that made me kind of actually make noises out loud when I was reading it. <laughs> uh, so I'm just going to read a little bit of it for our listeners because um, I'm going to embarrass you. <laughs> but you write. To affix the word white on the front of working class is to posit that there is something distinct about the relationship between whiteness and class. The white working class narrative then serves no purpose other than to obscure where power lies, undermine liberatory politics, and reinstate the white male breadwinner as the default trade unionist and gatekeeper of the union. Um, so that made me cheer, folks. Um, and in, in writing about this, you call explicitly for a liberatory unionism. So I wonder if you could tell us like, what you mean by that
3: yeah so I was trying to come up with a sort of term for um getting beyond equality and diversity um so I think unions now understand that they have to be concerned with those issues of equality and diversity. you know it's not enough to to just uh, have a kind of union that's serving loads of like old white you know um, straight men Um, you have to you have to be kind of active and thinking about those issues of diversity and um, identity if you like but um, I think that kind of that that's the extent of it almost in a lot of unions today is that they are just thinking about it and they're just kind of adding it on. So you might have a sort of most unions do have a, you know, women's officer or a disabled workers committee um, or a kind of conference event that's about, you know, equality and diversity. And I'm certainly not saying that those things are not valuable um, or that those people who are in those positions don't do brilliant work. But when I call for liberatory unionism, what I'm talking about is a actually kind of radical reorganisation of the labour movement um, around the interests of um, sort of diverse and marginalised workers. So the recognition that these things aren't just a kind of, you know, woke <laughs> add-on, but that they are actually part and parcel of our experience of work and of class. So you can't separate being a, a woman or a trans person or a disabled person or a carer. You know, you can't separate that experience from how you experience your work and your class. They're completely kind of inextricably linked. And so the way that I experience work and the way that I experience being part of the working class is going to be completely different than, you know, multiple other people in the union. Um and so that that's what I'm calling for, really, is something that um, addresses that structurally rather than just kind of um, symbolically, I suppose. Um, and I think some unions are, are starting to get there, you know, um, in terms of who they're organising and kind of how they're how they're talking about these issues. But I think, you know, if I had to characterize the union movement as a whole, I would say that it's very much still kind of transitioning from the very old school model of um, white male breadwinners um, towards uh, a sort of libertary politics that they haven't actually kind of reached yet.
0: So you write a little bit in the book about how, um, and we've talked a little bit about this already with IWGB and that um, about how unions can use... Technology and social media to actually reach people where they are. Um, And I don't know if this has happened over there at all. It's really been um, like the last year in the US, I keep getting emails about like new startups that are going to help you get into a union that I roll my eyes at really hard. But nevertheless, like people are using WhatsApp groups and Twitter and Facebook to organize. Um, So, yeah, I wonder if you can talk a little bit about anything that you've seen on that front that has been promising.
3: Yeah, so I think when I was kind of talking about technology and attracting young workers, one of the things that was making me sort of bang my head against the wall was this idea that the the way to do that the way to embrace technology and attract young workers is to um you know have a really nice app or like a really slick fancy website um and then they'll all come running (laughs) um and that is (laughs) that's not what i'm talking about when i'm talking about kind of you know embracing these new technologies so i think there's two sides to it so one side is in terms of how unions should be thinking and talking about technology and On that side of the argument, I kind of make the case that it's not about just talking all the time about robots stealing our jobs and that kind of thing. Um, Rather, it should be about kind of speaking about ownership and control. And, you know, we can't stem the tide of technology. And we shouldn't really be trying to, because it can be really kind of um, useful and emancipatory. Um, But the kind of evidence shows us that our bosses tend to get in there first and use it against us. So the kind of case that I make is that how unions should be talking about technology is about how we can um, leverage it so that it's as kind of powerful and useful for us as it has been for our bosses against us. Um, and then the other side of that conversation is kind of what you're pointing to there about how unions themselves can use that technology to, in their organizing work, to organize workers and to advance the kind of interests of the the union. Um, and yes, in the UK, there are kind of similar things where you see um, startups, you know, there's one called Organize, which is a kind of platform that unions can use to collectivise, and actually non-union members can also use it to collectivise issues, so you kind of post on there if something's happening to you at your workplace and you can gather support from other people and then um, the kind of infrastructure of the organised platform means that someone can come in and sort of support you to build a campaign around that. And actually, you know, that, that's a great thing if people are turning to it. I wish it was union-led and kind of embedded in the union movement, Um because what what I did come to realise when I was kind of writing about technology in that context is that young people are sort of turning, in many cases, to things like online petitions, um, you know, change.org petitions, um, and they just don't have any of the protections that they would have if they were doing that kind of work within a, a union structure. So. So, that, so I think there's a, a gap there for unions to kind of step into what those startups are doing and what change.org and stuff is providing. Um, and and to say, you know, you can do all this stuff that you want to do, but within our structure and you can be much more protected while you do it and you can benefit from our knowledge and our kind of expertise. Um, so, so there there's the kind of um, roots of some of that starting to happen. You know, the Trade Union Congress has a, kind of petition function now that it's rolling out um to to unions it's been used to some success um but some of the some of the kind of best stuff that i've seen has been so basic you know it's been about workers being able to organize um strikes and stuff on on uh, whatsapp groups um you know that's not new technology (laughs) it just is the technology that young people are using every day as in the kind of course of their ordinary lives Um, and so, you know, for unions, maybe for some unions to be suddenly active on WhatsApp is quite radical and new, but it's definitely not um, something that young people would uh, think of as radical and new. So it's about kind of meeting them where they are and, you know, realizing that for for this new generation of young workers that we need to attract, um, all these technologies are just part of life. They're not particularly yeah. exciting or interesting. They're just where people are. So unions need to be there too.
0: Yeah. Until, of course, they all go down for a day.
3: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, exactly. That was a lot. Was a lot. Um,
0: I was very cut off. I was very lonely. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> yeah. So another thing that you, that you touch on is, is the growth of community unions, tenants unions, this kind of organizing that does claim a sort of union structure, even though it's not based in the workplace, and how that is and isn't connected to existing unions.
3: Yeah, I think um I try to make the case that the kind of future of the, the union movement is gonna be in sort of going um well within and beyond, you know, not, not kind of forgoing the workplace, but also looking beyond it. Because the, the challenges that are facing young people now are so existential in nature that, you know, if you ask a young person kind of what they're most worried about in the in the world, I imagine that most of them would say, you know, climate change and housing and and those kinds of issues before they might even mention work. Um, For for a variety of reasons, I think there's also, you know, problems there with the kind of low expectations that people have of work um, in the first place. But that's a sort of different, (laughs) different conversation. Um, But I think that for unions to be kind of relevant to young people's lives, they need to be part of those conversations about, about climate and about housing and about social justice. Um, and I'm not suggesting that, that you know, they should be replicating the work of other unions that are doing that kind of stuff. And I'm not suggesting that those unions should become sort of generalist um, unions and stop just being focused on, you know, rent issues or community issues. But I am kind of calling for, you know, really powerful coalitions between those different types of unions. So however that looks, it's going to look different for different um, unions and in different contexts. But um, well, however that looks for you and your union, I think it's really important to be building those alliances.
0: Yeah. So to, to wrap up, I guess we touched on Unite earlier, but there is new leadership in several of the bigger unions. The Labour Party is clearly having a lot of problems Um, And at least one union disaffiliated from the Labour Party after this uh, most recent conference. Um, The Tories are making sort of workerish noises, but still slashing programs that people depend on. And labor shortages are leading to crises and calls to reopen immigration on some level um, so there's a lot going on in the uk around the issue of work um, so what are a couple of things that you're sort of looking at keeping an eye on in the coming months and years um, for british unions and workers
3: oh that's a great question um i think <laughs> i'm really interested in um some of the organising that's happening around migrant workers, because obviously so far that's focused on um, migrant workers who are already living in the UK and, and have jobs and, you know, are working quite often in kind of low paid um, cleaning and care, for instance. But I'm interested to see how how those kinds of networks and the successes and the power that's been built um Amongst those workers might be utilized um more broadly in terms of kind of international solidarity and these issues that we're seeing now of how migrants and prospective migrant workers are being treated um you know completely awfully by the the government you know <laughs> I don't know how widely reported this was in the states but the the government to kind of try and deal with them um, supply chain issues you know because of uh brexit essentially and, and not having enough workers kind of driving vans the government you know very kindly offered um three-month visas that run out at christmas for, for people to come and uh, drive vans for us
2: yeah um,
3: <laughs> so i mean what i'm really interested to see is how some of the kind of unions that have been active in migrant workforces might um yeah might kind of utilize some of that power to to be part of those wider conversations about um the people who aren't necessarily here already but um kind of what that looks like internationally um so that's one thing and I think that you know the the question of unionism that we touched on earlier I'm really um interested and I think I'm really optimistic to see kind of where that goes because there are certainly people making the right noises about all of that um but it's where I see a lot of work still to be done um in terms of you know the potential that unions have but the the kind of um yeah how much they have to do to get there i suppose so i'll be keeping a close eye on all of those kinds of issues
0: excellent well we will have to have you back on to talk more about all of this in <laughs> the future um thank you for joining us
3: oh thank you very much for having me you're listening to belabored a Descent magazine
0: podcast links to articles mentioned in this episode may be found at descentmagazine.org.
1: And that was Eve Livingston talking about our new book, Make Bosses Pay. And now it's time for ARG, I wish I'd written that, in which we discuss the pieces that we liked but did not write. My pick for ARG is Feel Good News Story or Poverty Propaganda by Callie Holloway in The Nation. Halloway starts off with some heartwarming anecdotes from recent human interest features, such as, quote, A group of FedEx employees raised the money to buy a car for their 60-year-old co-worker, who had been walking 24 miles round-trip to and from work each day because she couldn't afford to fix her own broken-down vehicle. Aw. These stories, at least as written, are supposed to make us feel all warm and fuzzy inside. Their purblind focus on the indomitable human spirit suggests that we should be moved and inspired by the up with people sense of community, the charitable generosity, and the hardscrabble uplift that they describe, which of course is not to knock community, charity, or uplift. The problem, as even a cursory read between the lines of such stirring storytelling makes clear, is that these news items are just masquerading as life-affirming narratives. In reality, they unintentionally highlight the casual cruelty, exploitation, injustice, and multi-system dysfunction we've been socialized to accept in every aspect of our American lives. In other words, these stories are training us to see charity and the humanity of our fellow humans as a substitute for structural deficits in the welfare state, the consequences of centuries of discrimination and oppression, and the deep wealth inequality that puts people in such desperate situations in the first place. Halloway goes on, Quote, a former student raising $27,000 for a 77-year-old substitute teacher who had been living in his car even before his earnings were decimated by COVID school closures isn't a touching reunion anecdote. It's a reminder of how shamefully underpaid public school teachers are, unquote. Such anecdotes also appeal to the myth that this country is built on meritocracy. It's the belief that one earns the life that they deserve and that the life they deserve is basically what they've earned. Meritocratic ideals seduce us with the toxic hope that things will get better as long as we, quote unquote, stay positive. We love stories about do-gooders and good Samaritans because we long to live in a world in which such kindness would be, one, abundant enough to help everyone who, quote unquote, deserves it. And two, would be all that we need to fill the social gaps created by generations of government disinvestment and corporate avarice. And no matter how DIY you are, you're not going to make up for a failing welfare state. What's particularly disturbing about these heartstring-tugging tales is that they play on very real emotions. They can be very moving, when we are reminded of the power of human kindness. Yet it may distract us from the systemic causes of injustice that people are attempting to alleviate in these stories without ascribing blame. The narrative underlying these pandemic redemption stories, that everything will be okay as long as we rely on each other and our own compassion, reminds me of the concept of resilience that is often battered about in pop psychology circles, as well as variants thereof, such as grit, The TED Talk-endorsed concept that kids can do anything as long as they have the pluck and can-do spirit they need to get through tough times. Or the classic self-help canard, the power of positive thinking, the idea that we can simply will away our troubles. These notions distract us from the failures of civic institutions and from the brutality of capitalism and its limitless capacity for abuse and exploitation. The resilience idea has actually helped spawn a cottage industry of what I call survival chic entertainment. The YouTube channels about prepping and bushcraft survival skills and living off grid and living the van life, they attest not only to our escapism, but to a kind of wearied resignation to a society in which all we have to rely on frequently is ourselves and occasionally the kindness of strangers. Halloway writes, quote, in attempting to normalize the crushing oppression of capitalism in our healthcare, labor policies, education system, law enforcement, and the abysmal state of our social safety nets, these stories reveal the inventive workarounds of folks have developed to survive and aid in the survival of others, unquote. And what's so bad about that? I mean, and the flip side of poverty propaganda is that there are often very well-intentioned, even sometimes successful attempts to seek local solutions using local ingenuity. The mutual aid networks that we've developed during the pandemic have shown how grassroots self-reliance and inventiveness can help us cope with government incompetency. Yet there's an ongoing debate on the left about whether mutual aid might be at odds with the ethos of militancy in holding power to account in social movements. Private charity or aid activity can be effectively combined with political consciousness raising, of course, but it can also turn us inward, away from seeking accountability from powerful institutions that generate the deprivation and desperation that we're trying to heal. So it's great that an oncologist Wrote off hundreds of thousands of dollars in medical debt for patients before retiring. That was another one of the feel good headlines. But it would be even greater if we had single payer healthcare and a healthcare infrastructure that didn't systematically lock sick people into a medical debtor's prison. Our socioeconomic landscape reveals what these feel good human interest stories obscure. Despite a surfeit of millionaires and billionaires across the country, our tax code does not even approach any kind of fair system for redistributing even a small fraction of that wealth. Halloway writes, Leaving that wealth untaxed means we have less money to fund our safety net, consigning the rest of us to do things like shareholder-focused health care. This is all fine. These stories coo at us in an insidious attempt to convince us that we're all getting what we deserve, unquote. Speaking of what we deserve, no amount of selflessness can replace a right to health, housing, personal autonomy, and equality before the law. A GoFundMe can pay for a friend's life-saving surgery, and taking up a collection at work might bring you enough cash to help a co-worker buy a car instead of having to walk on foot for hours a day. Those are great stories. But the real story is that our institutions make us reliant on such extraordinary acts of kindness in order to partially offset the wholesale denial of our human rights. We don't deserve charity. We deserve justice.
0: Because the workers are still taking action and because workers involved in the organizing have been terminated from the app in recent weeks, I am taking a point of podcast host privilege and arguing an article that came out in August, but that I only read this week. Titled How Migrant Riders for the Guerrilla's Delivery Startup Are Reigniting the Fight for Labor Rights in Germany by Asiya Ahmed at Galdem magazine, the piece goes inside the organizing by gig economy workers who deliver groceries in Berlin. Guerrilla's is one of approximately a million gig companies that promise to deliver you things you need on demand. And though it only launched during the pandemic, it has already reached $1 billion in valuation. It offers grocery delivery at the ludicrous pace of 10 minutes from the time of order. And it accomplishes that by pressing its warehouse pickers and its bicycle delivery riders to work at breakneck speed. So, Ahmed writes, they've had enough. Quote, a sunny July Saturday in Berlin. With lockdown finally lifted, chatter from outdoor cafes and restaurants fills the streets. But there's another sound, too. The persistent chime of dozens of bike bells ringing in tandem. The source of The noise? Riders for lauded grocery delivery startup guerrillas, who have chosen today for the next in a series of wildcat strikes, protesting dangerous and poorly recompensed working conditions. Today, the action takes the form of a bike tour through Berlin as convoys of riders, backs free of their normal heavy cargo, whiz to guerrilla supply warehouses across the city. Arriving at their destinations, riders hang banners from warehouse windows, bringing operations to a halt while chanting, hey, hey, ho, ho, get organized and join the strike, in the hopes of inspiring new workers to get involved, end quote. She continues, quote, riders formed the Gorillas Workers Collective in February 2021, aiming to fight against unfair treatment and force the company to address the health and safety risks that riders face daily. Their aim is to reveal to customers and investors alike that the uber-convenient service comes at a much greater cost than the 1 euro eighty delivery fee. Behind the friendly face of the guerrilla service lies a grim reality. Riders who shared their stories with Galdem cited a litany of mistreatment, including frequent accidents, chronic back pain, missing pay slips, and sudden termination of employment. Obstacles, including racial discrimination and wrangles with visas, mean migrant workers, often hailing from Argentina, Chile, Spain, and Turkey, find the German job market difficult to navigate. And in the seasonal and gig work most often open to them, it's common for migrants to find themselves up against precarious working conditions. Gorillas is not the only food delivery service where workers are taking on management. Worker strikes have hit Deliveroo in the UK, Uber Eats across Latin America and in South Africa, and Bolt Food in Georgia, end quote. Workers have faced problems getting their injury pay. I know injury pay sounds amazing to American gig workers, and they have been terminated from the app, and the migrant workers face particular discrimination. Ahmed writes, quote, During a protest on 28 June, workers delivered a list of 19 demands to management, with a deadline for them to be met by 14 July. In the meantime, management began terminating a number of migrant riders without notice from 8 July, even though these workers passed their probation and held letters from the immigration office permitting them to continue working until their upcoming meetings with the authorities. But the workers have not given up, as this week's actions show, and you can follow their ongoing organizing on Twitter at GorillasWorkers. So that is all we have time for this week. Stay tuned for much more on gig economy workers, the ongoing strike wave, and working and not working in the age of COVID-19. Thanks, as always, go to the folks at Descent for hosting us for several years now, to Natasha Lewis and now Colin Kinneborough for editing us, and most importantly, of course, to you for supporting us, listening to us, sharing us with your friends, tweeting about us, talking about us, sharing your stories with us, and most importantly, perhaps rating us on various podcast services, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. It really does help us find new listeners. Um, and we appreciate it very much. Special thanks, of course, to those of you who are sustaining members of the podcast over at Patreon, patreon.com/slash belabored, or for you old school types at the descent website, descentmagazine.org/slash belabored. We understand that not everybody can afford to support the podcast. Um, we are, after all, writing about work. But if you have some spare money, um, labor journalism is not free. This is exhausting. And we very, very much appreciate you helping us keep the stories coming to you. And we have, of course, some wonderful gifts for those of you who support us. Belabored tote bags, which I saw in the wild recently. It was very exciting. Gorgeous, gorgeous Molly Crabapple worker portraits for the highest tier. And you can, of course, find out more at Patreon page, patreon.com slash belabored, or at the Descent website, descentmagazine.org slash belabored. If you want to share your story with us of working under coronavirus or anything else, you can, as always, email us at belabored at if you are film crew or a hospital cleaner, restaurant server or a cab driver, unemployed or overworked or both, we want to hear from you. You can tweet at us too at hashtag belabored. Thanks again for listening. Solidarity. You've been listening to Descent Magazine's Belabored podcast. For the entire archive of past episodes, visit descentmagazine.org. Join us online using hashtag belaboured.